You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Has speculative mania reached a fever pitch? Will rising treasury yields drag high-flying tech stocks back down to the ground? And how does gold function as a store of value in the wake of Bitcoin's tremendous surge? For all this and more, I'm joined by Jared Dillian, Bloomberg opinion columnist and editor of the Daily Dirt app. Jared, welcome back to the Daily Briefing. How are you doing? Uh, Pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice. I'm really glad that you could make it because we're at a time where... Uh, of, of immense disarray in the financial markets. Rates are going up uh, incredibly quickly on the long end of the curve. And that's kryptonite to growthy names uh, that have seen a few uh, nosedives over the past few days. Meanwhile, everyone's wanting to get into the cyclicals, um, you know, your real estate, your, your airlines. Um, so I'm really glad that you're here to help make sense of it all. So how about we just start by, Jared, you laying out your framework on how you're viewing these markets. We're in a period of intense speculation. And the analog here is the dot-com bubble in 2000. And the thing that these two periods have in common is retail participation, millions of retail investors piling into the market. I have a friend here in Myrtle Beach. His name is Dave. And he does, he's a fix and flip guy. He buys houses, fixes them up, and flips them. And he does this with country houses. And he was out in the country in a town called Loris, which nobody's ever heard of. And he was out there and he saw these teenagers and they were in camouflage because this is rural South Carolina. And they're arguing about their stocks. They were trading stocks on Robinhood and they're arguing about which stock was better. And this is happening in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina, and really in one of the poorest areas of the country. So if you want to talk about the degree to which speculation has taken hold, I mean, I'm really a sentiment guy by training. So when people are demoralized, that's when I get bullish. And when people are very excited, that's when I get bearish. And I think the thing that put me over the edge was really the whole GameStop incident a couple of weeks ago. Um, that's when I said, you know, retail, retail always piles in at the top. And this is another example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when that GameStop fiasco happened about a month ago, uh, you posted something on Twitter. People are focused on GME and AMC and Tootsie Roll, but you're missing the real play here. Sell everything. And I want you to explain that tweet because you're someone, you're a sentiment guy, uh, when everyone was getting very dis- de- uh, demoralized over the past year, you were piling into the market. Now, uh, over the past month, you've become quite bearish. Uh, how did Tell me about your transformation. What's your thinking there? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I would describe it as bearish. I did sell a lot of stuff. Uh, I sold everything except for my commodity plays and the, um, you know, the pandemic plays, stuff opening up. And so I probably ended up being about 40 or 50% of my portfolio. Um, outside of a couple of very small trades, uh, put spreads in Tesla and Facebook, I'm not really short. Uh, I'm not short the market. I don't have any short exposure. You know, one of the things I've learned in my career is that when the market tops, 
it generally doesn't make a V top. It doesn't make a spike top. It's, it's a big rounded period of distribution. So it's going to take a long time for the market to top. And it's just going to require some patience. And, you know, just in terms of the price action, I mean, if you look at what happened yesterday in Tesla, it traded down to about 620 a share, and people bought the dip, which is perfectly natural. I mean, this is, this is what happens in the first leg of a downturn is that people buy the dip, and it works, and it works until it doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, it turns into selling. So that's many months from now. But the statement that I was trying to make is, with the level of speculation that we have here, I really don't want a lot of exposure to equities generally. Stocks are probably about 30% of my portfolio now. Mm. Um, uh, you said equities as a whole are uh, overvalued. I feel like right now it's particularly tech that's getting uh, pummeled. Um, it's, it's companies like Tesla, Facebook. Yes, Tesla opened down, what was it, 17%. But by the end of the day, it was only down 2%. They, they bought the dip, um, as you say. Uh, what's your outlook on tech um, and with its relation to rising rates? I mean, it's, it's just a function of valuation. And we've entered a period of time. And look, this started the day that the Pfizer vaccine was announced. I don't remember the day, but it was last year. That mm -hmm. was a 15 standard deviation move of value over growth. And, you know, growth had been over outperforming value for over 10 years, and that was the turn. And if you've charted value over growth, you've had this big bottom, and value is now starting to outperform. And, you know, if you look at these style box trades, value growth, small cap, large cap, these things, once they get going, they go for years and years and years. So this is really the beginning of the turn in value. So the stuff that I have left over is pretty much value. And that's, you know, I think that's a pretty good place to hide out. If the analog here, again, is the dot-com bubble. And from 2000 to 2003, you had this period of time where tech stocks were getting annihilated, but value actually did pretty well. So, you know, back then I wasn't a believer in the tech bubble. I had most of my money in value and I actually did pretty well at the time. Mm, okay, so it sounds like your worries about the equity market don't have a lot to do with uh, insolvency and, and growth. They're much, much more to do with psychology and and people piling into these uh, high retail names that are now high flyers. And you think if uh, it reaches a certain point, uh, if it goes down twenty percent and it doesn't rebound, that that can just compound and really blow up. Is, is that your framework? Yeah, and there's a lot of other considerations. I mean, there's there's other moving parts here. You got to look at what the Fed is doing. Yeah. And you know, we've been moving forward rate hike expectations a little bit. You know, now people think the first hike will be in 2023, pretty soon it'll be in 2022. And I, you know, the Fed this Fed is a reactive Fed. It's not the Greenspan Fed. Greenspan was really a trader, okay? And he was he kind of was a contrarian. And when things got hot, he was willing to take, take away the punch bowl. He did it in 2000. So this Fed is not that Fed. They have to get forced into things by the market. So you fast forward six months from now, and you look at Fed funds and euro dollars, and they're starting to sell off, and they're starting to price in rate hikes. The, the Fed could get forced into tightening, and that's really probably the point at which the market is really going to be for sale. Mm, when you say tightening, are you talking about the short end of the curve? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Also, uh, just just reading your, 
work on the Daily Dirt Nap about the Federal Reserve, you wrote that the, the Federal Reserve is really in the game of uh, trying to be the least embarrassed. And for that reason, they won't enact yield curve control until uh, rates get uh, quite high. Um, I forget exactly what level you said on the on the 10 year. But how does t tell us about that and how does that uh, inform your trading? Because obviously, if the Fed does enact yield control, that's when you want to pile into gold. Um, and these commodity names that sounds like you're, you're bullish on already. But if the if the yields keep on rising, that's maybe when you want to uh, own more of the bank. So tell us uh, what are your thoughts on whether the Fed will enact yield curve control and how does that inform your your uh, trading? Yeah, I mean, I think yield curve control. Look, I, you know, I had a conference call on this in Asia a couple of weeks ago, and I talked about. Um, you know, this idea that the Fed's going to do YCC and they they thought I was nuts. You know, so this is, you know, it's kind of a consensus idea in the U.S., but it's not really a consensus idea outside of the U.S. But this, you know, this happened before. This happened in the 30s and the 40s. The Fed was doing yield curve control. They pegged the 30-year at 2% and they held it there for a really long time. So there is precedent for it. Um, I think, you know, again, since this is a very reactive Fed, I think that we the rates have to go up a lot before this happens. You know, there's a lot of people talking on Twitter about the Fed's going to jump in and do it like it's it's not happening. Like it's not it's probably not happening until tens get at least to two and a half, um, because then, you know, then you have this issue of solvency, you know, the U.S. being insolvent on its debt because. We're going to go from 300 billion a year in interest expense to 900 billion a year in interest expense, and that becomes a problem. And you know, you have Yellen, who used to be the Fed chair, and she worked with Jay Powell, and you have this coordination between the Fed and the Treasury, and that's really where the Fed could step in and do yield curve control. I think that's probably a year away, and this has not been a high velocity move in rates. I mean, if you know, the bottom in rates was almost a year ago. Uh, it's taken a year for rates to back up about 100 basis points. So this hasn't really been a high velocity move. I actually had uh, a, a steepener trade on last year, and I got so bored with it that I took it off. So you know, it's 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 been a pretty slow move. It's been it's been water torture, is what it's been. Um, and you know, it's it's just going to take a while. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah, uh, the move definitely has been slow, but I might add extremely steady. And we have seen that that move um, steepener. Am I, am I mistaken, though? I think, though, that uh, the, the move has accelerated over the past, uh, let's say, eight to 10 trading days. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. One of the things I've been writing about is it's getting a little sloppy. And, you know, what is what is the likelihood that um, the rates market could d become disorderly? Um, could happen. I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, let's so let's talk about some assets that you, you are constructive on. You mentioned uh, that you're into the materials and the Energy, energy sector. Uh, why why uh, do you find those assets attracted at this time? It's mostly energy. Um, you know, energy has been a trade since I don't remember the exact date. It was last year. Um, I, I actually I got involved a little early 
It was before uh, Russia and the Saudis started pumping, if you remember that. So it was a couple of months before oil prices went negative. I averaged down. You know, my theory on, on energy, I mean, this is fantastic stuff. You know, I, I came up with a theory about a year or two ago called the theory of constraints. Okay, let me, let me explain how it works. You have one portfolio manager. You have portfolio manager A, and they can invest in anything they want. You have portfolio manager B, and portfolio manager B has constraints. They can invest in everything except for energy. So the question is, how can you expect portfolio manager B to outperform portfolio manager A? And you can't because they, by definition, they can't hold all the stocks. Now, portfolio manager B is probably an ESG manager. Okay. So the thing is, is that these stocks that have constraints, which in this case are energy stocks, they must offer the promise of higher returns to get the unconstrained investors to invest in them. And that's what was so special about this energy trade back when oil prices went negative, because you had investors that had explicit constraints. They simply could not own these stocks by their own rules. And then you had investors with implicit constraints, which means that these stocks had become so embarrassing because of the returns that they didn't want to be seen with it in their 13F. And it was the ultimate, I mean, this is contrarian trading. I mean, you want to buy stuff when they're giving it away. And that's really the academic basis for it. Mm, that's really interesting. And that uh, makes me think of your background in ETFs, which I, I want to get to in a, in a, in a little bit. Um, but first, let's talk about something else that is perhaps constrained, uh, uranium. I saw that you, you are uh, constructive on perhaps a, a, a miner in, in uranium. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I'm long Cameco. You know, yeah. we've had it in the newsletter for a while. Um, you know, there's there's definitely people who know more about uranium than I do. I mean, it's a very simple concept. You know, just with climate change, um, carbon emissions. If you want to fight carbon emissions, the best way to do it is with nuclear. It's just common sense. I mean, wind, geothermal, all this other stuff. That's great, but you just cannot produce power on that scale in a clean fashion like you can with nuclear. Nuclear power plants are safer these days. And the thinking is, is that the Biden administration is going to be smart and they're going to go towards nuclear, and that's really the basis of the trade. And if it's if you know if it works, it's uh, it's probably a three to five x winner. And if it doesn't work, it's not that much of a loser because it was kind of a call option. So, you know, that's the basis of the trade. Let's move on to uh, Kathy Wood and her arc, her series of ETFs, which consist of, uh, I don't want to say speculative, but very growth-oriented companies uh, like uh, genome sequencing, like, like Tesla, uh, the companies of, of the future uh, that, that they would probably say. Um, I know that you're not constructive on Tesla <laughs> because you have a put option on it. And I, I also know that um, you think that these growthy names could get pummeled uh, if, again, that's my word, not yours, but if, if, the, if rates start to rise. Um, tell me about your outlook on that portfolio and then also uh, about the ARK ETF specifically, because you know, I know you have a background in that. Yeah, you know, I, I ran the ETF desk at Lehman Brothers for four years, and this is before actively managed ETFs. The ARK ETF is an actively managed ETF, so it's a little bit of a different animal. And what she's doing with the transparency is, is very different altogether. The problem is, is that she has a lot of illiquid holdings in the portfolio. So, um, you know, if people sell the ETF and force redemptions, 
um, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of liquidity in the underlying stocks. So there could be some convexity to the downside, you know, and I've been thinking about possible ways to play some kind of unwind of this tech and growth trade. And there's very consensus ways to do it. You can, you know, buy puts on Amazon or Google or Facebook or stuff like that. Um, but that doesn't really give you a lot of convexity. You know, the ARC funds, you know, the options are not that liquid. But if you wanted some exposure to a crash in this growth and innovation trade, that's probably the best way to do it. And I do know that some people are starting to put up some size in the options. Mm, that's uh, very compelling. I uh, may have may have a look at that after this. Um, let's let's talk, move on to something which I know is dear to your heart, which is gold. Um, you've been bullish on gold uh, for for some time now. Um, I want to ask you if rates are rising on the long end, um, wouldn't that uh, wouldn't that be and, and let's say inflation holding at, holding inflation as a constant, wouldn't that be negative for gold? So I guess uh, why do you like gold at this juncture? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I've, I always like gold. I've liked it for the last sixteen years. So that none of this none of this really changes my view. And I've liked it when rates go up, and I liked it when rates go down. Um, and yes, from an academic standpoint, you know, rising rates is bad for gold. I think what's hurting gold is Bitcoin. Uh, you know, Bitcoin has attracted tens of billions of dollars in capital. Um, if you know, in the absence of Bitcoin, gold would probably be trading at twenty five hundred right now. So you have two assets that are in competition with each other, and there's other assets. I mean, you're talking about stores of value. So you're talking about um, you know, crypto or gold, or diamonds, or vintage cars, or baseball cards, or whatever. But these are all stores of value. And if you're worried about inflation, if you're worried about currency debasement, you look at all these possible different stores of value, like art and stuff like that, and you say, which is going to be the best horse? You know, Paul Tudor Jones, this is exactly the argument he made about Bitcoin. He said he thought that Bitcoin would be the fastest horse, and it has been. Um, you know, it's it's way too early to say that Bitcoin is a success or not. You know, there's a, popular wisdom says it's either worth zero or it's worth a million. So there's a lot of optionality there. But if it's not a success, then gold is probably going to be the most liquid alternative store of value that people are going to pile into. And I, you know, I just I think it's a safe bet. I mean, it's been it's been the way it's been this way for four thousand years. People have invested in gold, um, and just for a full disclosure, I'm long a bunch of it in gold miners and stuff like that. So, right. Um, and uh, Jerry, you were long Bitcoin uh, up until a certain point, right? Yeah, I, I bought Bitcoin in September of 2019, and I sold it last month. Uh, did pretty well, and I'm out of the trade, and I've never been happier. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nice. Um, well, I'm happy for you that uh, it was a good trade and that you got got out of it. Uh, what's your outlook? Can you can you talk about Bitcoin within the context of this speculative mania? Because I feel like a lot of people who are into crypto, and you know, I'm someone who I would say I'm an observer of the crypto world, but I'm you know also uh, I've been a participant in it. Do you see a relation between the you know speculation in Bitcoin and and stocks? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bitcoin is a proxy for risk, for sure. And usually if there's a, a correction in Bitcoin, it, it leads a correction in stocks by about two weeks. Um, having said that, you know, is Bitcoin a bubble? 
look like when Elon Musk put laser eyes on his profile pic and it goes up a thousand bucks, like that sounds like a bubble. At the same time, you know, you have asset managers who are having conversations about, you know, gee, should we have one, two, three percent of our assets in this? So it, it, it's it's a very difficult thing to understand because on one step, it kind of walks and talks like this speculative mania. But on the, on the other hand, there's some real fundamental reasons why this could get bigger. So I really don't have the answer. Jared, I've got a question. It's my understanding that uh, over the years, you when you've been constructive on the market as a whole, you've been saying, don't fight the Fed. And, and you haven't had a lot of pe- pity for people who have uh, fought the Fed. Um, would you, what would you say to the following argument? The Fed continues to plow 120 trillion into the market, uh, uh, you know, 80 billion treasuries, 40 billion mortgage-backed securities uh, every month. There's no sign of stopping. Uh, the, the short end of the curve is going to stay low and perhaps even go even lower. Um, and then the long end is a different story. But you know, by by getting out of risk assets now, um, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Would you be fighting the Fed? Uh, um, maybe implicitly, like. I think fighting the Fed would be short. We would be being short. And I think that's suicidal. And I'm not short. Um, look, like it, it's 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 very hard to nail the dismount. Okay. Let's let's put it that way. It's very hard to nail the dismount. And you know, I I I'm old enough where I don't have this psychological need to like top tick things and be a hero and you know go on twitter and say i top tick stocks and you know i just don't care like at some point you make enough money and that's it and you're you're just out of the trade and you just find another trade so that's kind of where i am with this you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Do you want to talk about commercial real estate for a sec? And within, within the context of the reopening trade, um, you know, that's been a very good trade, investing in the uh, office buildings, the, the, the cruise liners, and the planes. Um, how far do you think that will run? And I, I also want to, uh, you know, I know in your article about investor exuberance that came out in uh, Bloomberg Opinion, um, you, you pointed out that when, when things can look so good, that, that, that the news can already be sort of priced into the, the market. So what, what's your outlook on the reopening trade? Yeah, I mean, all this stuff, airlines, cruise lines, theme parks office real estate, stuff like that, it's all going to go much longer than people think. Uh, It'll go back to levels, it'll go above levels where it was in the pandemic. You know, office real estate in particular, um, you know, one of the stocks in my portfolio in the newsletter is SL Green, which uh, is a pretty out of consensus pick because the consensus is is that New York is dead. Office real estate is never coming back. People are always going to be working from home. The occupancy rate on SL Green properties is about 15% right now. And people think that in a best case scenario, returns to 40 or 50%. Look, I mean, we heard from you know David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs the other day, like this work from home is an aberration. We are going to be coming back to the office. People need to get back together. They need to collaborate. And you know, office real estate is going to be a, a good trade. So I, I actually think this is still kind of an early innings in that trade. Mm, interesting. It, it has been a, a good trade um, s- since the crash. Uh, 
like, like so so many stocks. Um, yeah, Jim Chanos, he came on Real Vision and in November and made a, a case uh, against that stock specifically um, be, because he said that occupancy rates and um, uh, cap rates, as well as just the, the rents that these office buildings can can um, command, had had fallen before um, the pandemic. So. Uh, it's very interesting that you have a differing view, um, which which so far has proven right. So it'd be very interesting to see uh, how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Jim Chanos, and he's done a lot. He's definitely done a lot more work on it than I have. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that um, I mean, it's hard work to be short anything these days, and these pandemic trades are really going to rip. Jared, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on Real Vision. Uh, before that, you go. I want you to explain something which I, a term you use in your in your newsletter, uh, which was covert gamma. Can you can you explain that term to me and what that means for the market? Yeah, so everybody knows what option gamma is. Okay, so if you, if you look at a stock and you look at the open interest on various strikes, if you see a big open interest, you can assume that there's some uh, there's some short gamma there, and there might be some velocity as the stock goes through the strike. I, I try to think about this thing called covert gamma, and covert gamma is kind of gamma that's not related to options. And you want to think about if a stock if a stock starts to sell off, how far will it go before people begin to bail out of the trade? Okay, so for a stock like Tesla, you know it's very difficult for Tesla to sell off because people are sitting on huge profits; they're massively in the money. And people don't start losing money probably on average until the stock gets down to about 200 or 300 bucks. So that's where that covert gamma is down there. That's where selling gets you to more selling, right? So that's that's how that concept works. Mm, mm, that's interesting. Um, uh, Jared, can you tell us quickly about the, you know, you, you've been following sentiment. Uh, what can you tell us from the, the data to show that uh, people are bullish or bearish. And I know in your recent piece, you had um, something on the, the bull index and the bear index. Uh, can you explain that to me? Well, I mean, like the, the, old, um, the old one that people look at is the AAII survey, which is about 47% bulls right now and 23% bears. That's kind of an extreme reading. There's like, there's, there's a bunch of these things. City has a fear and greed index and CNN has a fear and greed index. They're all they're all pegged to like max bullish sentiment levels. So this is uh it, you know it's it, it directly corresponds to what's going on in the market. Mm. And uh, there's something else called the Costanza principle. Can can you explain that um and specifically about the idea of how how things seem uh can can you sometimes you want to do the opposite of what uh have things seen? Well, the principle of Costanza is you do the opposite of what your instincts tell you to do. For example, uh, a very bad payroll number comes out. You would expect stocks to sell off on that because on a linear basis, that's bad news. But stocks actually go up. So you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. We got bad economic news, but the stock market went up. And the reason it went up is because there's second order effects, because if the economic news, economic data is bad, the Fed is going to cut rates, which provides liquidity, which is good for stocks. So the, so this is what this means. If you're thinking about things in a very first order linear way, you're always going to get hosed. You have to look at the second derivatives, derivatives of these trades 
And that's how Costanza works. Mm, interesting. Well, uh, Jared, thanks so much for coming on The Daily Briefing. Um, it's been really good hearing about how you think about these markets. Uh, we should have you again sometime. Great. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.